Hey listeners, Shrill Collective here. Just a heads up that The Rat King contains adult content, including descriptions and instances of stalking and violence. Listener discretion is advised. Resources for these issues can be found in the show notes and at the end of the episode. Please enjoy The Rat King. Welcome, everybody. This is The Rat King. Part 4. A pretty okay species. Daphne knows the squirrel is dead. She knows its ragdoll carcass was dragged back to the nest, where it was feasted upon by countless other rats. She is no longer trying to save the squirrel. It isn't about that. But maybe you recall, in the moment the rat was disappearing with its prize, Daphne says they looked at each other. She expands this recollection later by email. She writes, I couldn't clearly discern if the rat was looking back at me. Its eyes were glistening and opaque, like coagulated beads of blood. But I do feel we saw each other. Maybe that sounds out there, but I knew clearly, in that moment, that I needed to follow it. And she's right. It does sound out there. But so has many of the details surrounding Daphne's story. Jade washing her clothes in the bathtub? Eloise or Esther? leaving a rat carcass like a mob boss? Phoebus and his hellas and his happy sunrises. So, driven by this, what should I call it? This nonverbal exchange with a rat, Daphne begins digging and tearing furiously at the pavers outside her front windows. She makes progress, too. Enough to see the incredible immensity of the rat's underground presence. Yeah, I don't know. That probably looks pretty intense. It was broad daylight. A few neighbors cruised by. Some people out strolling their kids. Like, I was definitely a spectacle. Do you see any more rats? No, but I got a little jumpy at some points. Mostly what I found as I dug was our stuff. People stuff. A candy bar wrapper. A chewed up cord. Some melon rinds. It was actually kind of a shocking juxtaposition. Like, on one hand, I was looking down at the rat tunnels and all their brilliant intricacy and precision. And then on the other hand, looking around at our disgusting patio, like trash cans overflowing with pizza boxes and discarded food. I don't know. That's the first time it occurred to me that maybe... The rats are related to the problem. Maybe even symptomatic or even symbolic of the problem, but they aren't the actual source of the problem. I don't know. I don't know either. But Daphne brings up an interesting idea. Despite how we squeal and squirm when we talk about rats and how we treat them with zero dignity as a fellow species pretty clear that infestations are much less of a them problem and much more 
of an us problem. Hold on. I'll pull one out for you. This is Reggie. He's a local exterminator, proudly serving Kings and Queens counties for 18 years. He's seen a lot in that time. I'd like to add, he's also an all-around great guy. The thing about rats is they behave just like people. They're a community. You can count on them to care for each other and, you know, bring food to each other. That's why these fellas work. Reggie holds up a large black plastic box. And what is that? Oh, this, this is a bait station. You generally want to put one of these in your yard or where you have outdoor space around your house. Rats are real cautious, real careful. They spend a couple of days testing it, sniffing around it, that kind of thing, and then they grab the bait. So how many rats can they actually poison? Eh, like I said, rats are like people. They don't just eat for themselves. They take food back to their nests. Then, instead of poisoning one, you poison a dozen. So is this bait station the main way you exterminate rats? Well, for pest control outside. Once they make it in your walls, that's another ball game. Then we would look to use tracking powder. How does that work? Well, I drill a tiny hole in the wall, and then I shoot it in there with a duster. Then I fill the hole. The rats, they run over it, and they ingest it. And that kills them? Yeah, that does. So then wouldn't you have rotting rats in your walls? Yeah, yeah, true, true, yeah, but you're not going to smell them. The powder, it, it makes it like they don't know they're thirsty. So over a few days or weeks, you know, their organs, they fail. And then they just dry up, dehydrate, no smell. They mummify? Now you're getting it. So, I know a large part of your profession is killing rodents. But if I can ask you to be as objective as possible when you answer the next question. Oh, okay. <laughs> what? Uh, it sounds like one of those traps my wife sets for me. <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> I, I promise it's not a setup. Objectively, what do you think of rats uh, as a species? Uh, huh. Well, I mean, I guess they're pretty good as far as species goes. I mean, they're smart, they're capable, they could figure out almost anything. Or like I said, they're real community-minded, you know, like people. You know, caring for the sick ones, the elderly ones. What, like you want a, like, like a grade? Sure. Uh, I'm going to give them a B plus. Oh, you know what? Wait, wait, wait. I'm going to give them an A minus. Because if I'm being objective, like you asked, I feel like they, they really make the most of it. They're a pretty okay species. They're not just capable. They also, they use all the stuff that we waste. You know, you know, people, they keep making new stuff and making new stuff and making new stuff. You know, I grew up, I grew up being taught to reuse things, uh, reinvent things. Yeah, repurposing. Yeah, uh-huh, yeah. R- rats, they repurpose all day long. The things we don't want anymore. Food, trash. That's finally becoming a popular practice. Businesses advertise themselves as sustainable. Now it's a selling point. <laughs> yeah, it's just like people. You wait until someone says, oh, the planet's broke, and then you market fixing it. <laughs> yeah. You know, rats, they have a pretty good brain-to-body ratio, too. Same as us, as a matter of fact. And they use their brains more efficiently than we do. How do you mean? 
Uh, how many times you see a person, they try to open up a locked door, and then they walk around a little, and then they try to open up the same door again. You never see a rat do something like that. They learn their lessons faster, and so, so they execute better. So more efficient all around. More efficient. And uh, tell you one more thing. Reggie leans in close here. Don't worry, we're wearing masks. If it was a competition, and I hope to God that it isn't, it's them that's winning. I mean, if you line up their life goals and our life goals, who's winning? It isn't us. Seriously, and that's fine. <laughs> business, business is booming. I can't help but think of a rat posing in a selfie on Instagram next to a discarded apple core with captions like, hashtag life goals and hashtag winning. Oh, and I checked on that brain-to-body ratio, by the way. Reggie is spot on. Brain-to-body mass ratio in humans is 1 to 40, exactly the same as in rodents. Remember that girl you probably knew in high school who brought her pet rat to class and let it crawl around her shoulders to the alternating delight and horror of her peers? She knew how intelligent rats are, what excellent companions they make. As Reggie says, a rat's best characteristics are not so unlike those of humans. They care for their old and sick. They are curious and playful. They have excellent memory and a sense of direction. But they bother us. A lot. Maybe it actually is some perverse psychology at play. You know, Carl Jung's everything that irritates us about others can lead us to an understanding of ourselves. Because rats generally pop up in the places our own least desirable qualities are on full display. They scavenge where we litter. They nest and hide where we leave piles of junk and discarded items. They seek out homes where food is not properly stored, where there is clutter and disorder. They tunnel into buildings and sidewalks in disrepair. The more people, the more rats. The more human waste, the more rats. Oh, yeah, of course. We blame the rats, right? We don't change our behavior. We just go and exterminate them. Hmm. Yeah, it seems a little unfair when you put it that way. What's fair? We're at the top of the food chain, so I guess it's all fair. But moral, I don't know about moral. I mean, we're not after them for food, usually not survival. Do you feel your work as an exterminator is immoral? Uh, you know, it's necessary a lot of the time. You know, get it wrong, rodents can make for very dangerous living conditions. But in some cases, you know, I guess I'm really not that much different than a social worker. How so? You know, I answer a lot of calls. People, they're in honest distress, about mice and rats especially. You know, I've shown up, mothers are crying, old men are cursing and carrying on. You know, people, they haven't slept for weeks, jump at the sound of a pin drop. It's a very deep thing to them, like an emotional thing. That's interesting. Why do you think infestations are so emotional for people? Well, I, I mean, I guess for one thing, there's just your basic idea of boundaries, right? You put up walls, and you think that the deal is, okay, these walls are going to keep things out. You know, all manner of things, right? Wind, water, predators. But rodents and other little critters, they don't pay that any mind. They find their way in. And if you want to go another step, what are boundaries even? Except control. I mean, if I'm going to take a guess, 
I'd say control is, is pretty much the main thing that makes people do everything. Meaning people fear the loss of control? <laughs> Meaning people do everything they can to avoid knowing they never had any control to begin with. I'm remembering something Daphne says as she's describing her post-squirrel epiphany. She says, This wasn't our building, or our streets, or our city. It was theirs. And I was curious about how long the rats had actually been at the house on Adelphi. How long they'd been executing their magnificent mazes beneath the street. How long, exactly, had the tenants been out of control of that situation? Or, as Reggie offers, had they ever been in control at all? So I went looking for Gary, a very long-term previous tenant of Daphne and Kay's garden apartment. You know Gary. No shirt, no shoes. I thought he might be able to shed some light on the topic. It helps that you remember his last name. How could I not? His mail came for months after he moved. He didn't use a forwarding service. What did you do with it? Every few weeks, we left a packet for him just inside the gate where he could easily reach it. I'm pretty sure he was coming for it regularly because it was always gone within a few days. Gary doesn't use social media, but he has some friends that do. We search hashtag Gary, hashtag cement, hashtag cement art, but we don't find him that way. Weirdly, I end up finding him through a thread about organic foods. He still lives in Brooklyn, Sunset Park, near the cemetery. He manages the food co-op. I reached out to Gary and said I had some questions about the Adelphi apartment building. I confess I'm surprised when he returns my call within several hours. Our first conversation is a little awkward and sometimes confusing, but he ultimately agrees to be interviewed. Here's a bit of that call. Before we start, sorry, when we first connected and I said I had some interest in the Adelphi address, you asked me something. Do you mind repeating that for our listeners? Uh, hi, I'm Gary. Um, yeah. So, I, I asked if something happened in the building. And what did you mean by that? I, I don't know. Some kind of incident. Uh, maybe someone got hurt. It's an old building. Everything is pretty outdated there. So, you thought I was calling about, like, an electrical fire or something? Sure, yeah. Something. I managed the building, so I, I guess it's sort of an old habit, you know, to be curious if everyone is okay over there. I didn't realize you managed that property. It was sort of unofficial. What do you mean, unofficial? Like an informal deal. I took care of the trash and did some light repairs. He means that he repairs lightly, not that he repairs lights. Though maybe he does that too. I hung some drywall, fixed leaks. We closed off the boiler room in the basement. I did all the framing and drywall for that. That's a big job. It took a few weeks. And I did some paving. What kind of paving? Some loose slabs out front. I work with cement in my art. So the landlady, Jade, 
asked if I could fix those. I don't know why, but it always breaks my heart when I hear grown adults refer to their creative endeavors as their art. There's something so sweeping and hapless about the designation. It immediately makes me think of households with young children, where just every slapdash offering is displayed without any discretion whatsoever. In this spirit, I think about the pavers, which we know were most certainly not fixed when Daphne moves into the apartment. Another mediocre watercolor for the fridge. Did Jade pay you for these jobs? We worked it out. We had a kind of unofficial deal. Here's this word again, unofficial. And that other word, deal. She barely raised my rent. That's significant over 15 years. I was still only paying a grand when I left, which was nothing. By the time I moved, that neighborhood was starting to gentrify like crazy. Starting? You just said you'd lived there for 15 years. What? I'm not talking about me. Right, but... Sorry, I'm not trying to be confrontational. It's just... Gentrification is a process of accumulation. Even the early birds count. The phone is quiet for a second, and I think he's hung up. But then Gary asks... What is this interview about again? Infestation. Okay. That's what I thought. I can attest to that. It was starting to get intense. Babies everywhere. Like stroller bumper cars. I lived in Park Slope in the early 90s, and Park Slope seems chill next to the new Fort Greene. So that was interesting. I told Gary we'd be talking about infestation in the pre-interview. And Gary thought I meant human infestation. Breeders. Human breeders. It's a natural intuition on Gary's part. And I love how he just casually, shirtlessly, cracks it open. Rat problems and people problems are kind of inextricable. After all, the arrival of the European colonials to this country occurred in tandem with... Wait for it. The first appearance of rats in this country. Straight off the ships from Europe. The Norway rat, now known as the New York rat, adapting, expanding, and taking over. So how about when you fix the pavers? Do you see any rats then? What? When you fix the pavers, do you see any rats? Um, sure, yeah. That was where they lived. I'm of two minds here. Gary is definitely not the easiest interview I've ever given. And half the time it feels like we're having different conversations. But I also love how uncomplicated his perspective is. Of course I see them. That's where they live. It's an unusual position on rats. Free to be you and me. Do you recall when you fixed the pavers? It was 2003. Early spring. Good memory. How many rats did you see when you were doing that job, ballpark? How many did I see or how many were there? Either. Both. Um, I saw two or three. Okay. How many were there? I don't know, a whole lot more than that. But if you don't see them, how do you know there's such a big rat presence? Oh, I guess I'd say normal. A normal rat presence. 
what's normal. You'd see them around, but they weren't inside the building. Of course, I was uniquely positioned to see rats because I did maintenance. Where do you see them? I don't know, by the trash, under the stairs. You've got to understand, it's New York. There are thousands down there. It's a city under a city. But it sounds like you don't really know that firsthand. I know it firsthand. I probably know more about that house than anyone. I know about the rats because I've been down there. Down where? Um, what? This happens a lot in our conversation. Gary overshares, even enthusiastically, and then quickly curls up. He's eager to flex his knowledge of the Adelphi house, but then gets inexplicably self-conscious. Remember, Daphne has always maintained that something doesn't seem right with Gary when he shows her around the apartment for the first time. Remember jumpy Gary? Harried Gary? A little at risk Gary? Turns out, even in her greed-filled distraction, Daphne's pretty perceptive on this point. He's still that way. There's a long pause. So I ask. Are you still on the line? Yeah, I am. Sorry. I, I get nervous. It's, it's okay. You're doing great. So have you been under the brownstone? Yes. Sure. Sure. It surprises me, and it doesn't surprise me. Of course Gary's been under the brownstone. But before we get into that, throughout this conversation, I'm able to piece together a few other surprising, not surprising things about Gary's history with the Adelphi house. Side note, if Gary remembers correctly, he lays those pavers in 2003, the same year, and the same time of year, in fact, that across the entire contiguous United States, Daphne begins seeing white rats in her Los Angeles apartment. I am not saying these two things are related in any practical way, but it's interesting to think about how these things act concurrently with one another, dancing distantly and together somehow. In 10 years, Daphne will kneel over these very same slabs, excavating the consummate throughways of her rodent neighbors. Gary concedes he doesn't do a great job on the pavers, and they start cracking apart again over the next couple of winters. And, as he mentions, there are hundreds of rats living under and around the brownstone, so they make short work of his light work. The pavers begin wobbling again, but Jay doesn't really care about it. She has made the grand gesture of attempting to address the defects for all the block to see, and now has Gary to blame for the rest. And then, over the next few years, as the neighborhood really starts booming with fresh hipster money, Jade comes to Gary with another unofficial deal. That was when she first introduced the idea of me moving out. Wait, sorry. What, what does that mean? Does she ask you to leave? No, no, no. She offered me another opportunity to move to the larger brownstone on Halsey Street. This building is located about two miles southeast of the Adelphi building, in the Bedford-Stuyvesant neighborhood of Brooklyn. But you're happy at your current residence? I was. But she was offering me another garden unit, rent-free. 
And I would be the manager of this building as well. Oh, so you'd manage both. I mean instead, not in addition. She said to look at it as a promotion. Of course, Gary must know it's not a promotion. And the offer doesn't sit great with him, though he's too nice a guy to say so. You can kind of hear it in his voice. It must have been hard to unstick yourself after 15 years. I was a little hesitant. I I didn't want to leave my garden. I had a Japanese maple. I've heard about the Japanese maple. That was mine. I raised it from a sapling. Those are special trees. Why do you move then? Jade can't make you, can she? She could have raised the rent. It sounds like you felt cornered. I acknowledge now I had a small self-regression at first. Disclaimer. Though I am sure my days are disfigured by countless small self-aggressions, this is not a commonly used phrase, and I take it to mean temporarily bypassing any personal growth and, well, acting like a baby. But Gary moves past this temporary lapse of maturity, and... I immediately identified my attachment, and I recognized I needed to move on. Attachments to worldly things are impediments. Life is a process of birth and rebirth, reinvention, and opportunity, and growth. You must let it flow. So that means you agreed. I recognized I'd exhausted my purpose at that apartment. And she was offering you free rent. So Gary takes the deal. What seems like a good deal. A smart deal. He says everything happens very quickly after that. And he begins gathering his 15 years of existence together in boxes and bags. For someone who classifies attachments to worldly things as impediments, Gary seems to have quite a lot in his way. He tells me he gets a bit overwhelmed with it, packing up trinkets and art supplies, figuring out how to reinstall kitchen cabinets he'd taken down in a fit of inspiration and then forgotten about. His biggest challenge is dismantling that one aerial installment that Daphne earlier mentioned. It looks like a typical beaded curtain like you'd find hanging in the doorway of a room containing lava lamps and bongs, but isn't typical at all, as every bead is hand-formed with, yes, cement, and the entire piece weighs upwards of 100 pounds. So Gary is already feeling hassled and confused to find all these impediments to his reinvention, when one morning, midway through August 2008, Jade calls to inform him the new tenants are coming by to see the apartment that they plan to move in at the end of the month. Yes, that's Daphne and Kay. I was surprised because I hadn't even seen my new apartment yet. Jade kept saying no one was available to show it. Okay, if you're starting to get a sad, pitted feeling, your instincts are spot on. If you're wondering if Jade's unofficial good-faith deal with Gary was real or not, well... (sighs) She said the Halsey tenants needed more time. I had to move all my things to storage and stay with a friend. Gary says things went on this way through September. 
Then Jade's number changed or got disconnected. He's not sure. At some point, he stopped by the Adelphi house and talked to Vic. But... He didn't have a new number for her either. I'm sorry. I really am sorry. It's like a soft eviction. And Gary still barely seems to place any blame at Jade's feet. Even the passive way he talks seems to absolve her. Her number changed. Instead of, she changed her number. Unfortunately, the suggestion seems to be that Jade knew she could double the rent if Gary moved out. And she wanted to do that. Maybe she was gaming the Halsey Street tenants in just the same way. But they caught on or dug in. Or maybe that offer was completely fabricated from the start. Not that it makes any difference in Gary's circumstance, but I hope it wasn't the latter. It just seems too crummy. Needless to say, Gary never gets to move into the new apartment. It takes him a year to find a place and get his impediments out of storage. He travels around a bit from friend to friend, and even lives outside for a few days here and there. When did you go under the brownstone on Adelphi? I don't know. I went a few times. Around when? I don't remember exactly. Just a general time frame. I don't get anything here. He doesn't remember or he doesn't want to say. So I asked Gary to explain how he got down there. In a separate interview, I asked Daphne to do the same. There was a door. There was a trap door. How do you find it? When I was pulling up those front pavers, I uncovered a bunch of little cavities like hollowed out places where the gravel just sank. Eventually, I could see some incredible tunnels and they were leading straight into the stoop. So I figured I'd check in that weird space back under the stairs. Super cobwebby in there, full of shovels, paint, soil, that kind of stuff. But there was a clear path to the back definitely looked like someone went in and out of there from time to time. Remember earlier, that little wooden door inside Daphne's gate? The weird space Daphne just mentioned is behind that door. We kept all the supplies under the stoop. That's where we stored anything building-related. Paint, tools, uh, cement, that kind of thing. Naturally, I was back there all the time. And in the far corner, under a bag of paving sand... I found a trap door. Can you describe that? Three feet by three feet, black, hinged. Did you go in? Yeah, of course. It was like a secret passage. A chute, but with a pretty wide berth. I fit easily. There's a tunnel under the trap door that leads down under the street. It was pretty circuitous. I went a little farther every time. The last time... I took a compass and made it to the subway. We were just situated about 200 yards northeast from the C train. I've got to say, it's pretty cool down there. It has a lot of possibility. It wrapped around. I passed what I can only guess were sewer pipes and gas lines. There were tons of little alcoves that seemed to lead to other tunnels. I could feel the rumble of the train every 10 minutes. Good old C train on the nines. I could feel a more distant rumble too, which I guess was the G. 
Assuming you have a flashlight? Yes, a really shitty one, but it held up. How did you know where you were going? I didn't. I was just in it. I felt very intentional, and, and I just kept going forward. Occasionally, I'd find a breadcrumb, and I'd know I was on track. What kind of breadcrumb? Honestly, I'd come upon a trace of... Well, myself. My life. A catalog I'd ripped up for recycling, and a, a scrap from one of Kay's old shirts that we'd tossed when it got stained with marinara. At that point, I was also seeing more and more rats. They were calling each other. I started recording on my phone. I can hear them. They sound musical. They were, kind of. My heart was beating really fast. I know I sound kind of casual telling it, but it, it's hard to explain. I was very alert, very present to the experience, which didn't make me unafraid, but just centered me in a strange way. I knew I was getting close because I looked down and I was in this river of rats, just a current of rats racing around my feet. I duct taped my ankles so they wouldn't run up inside my pant legs, but they really weren't trying to. They were just sort of running around me almost gleefully. It was like a scene from a movie when the hero returns home and all the townspeople frolic around them. If you'd asked me before how I thought I'd respond to a situation like that, I would probably say I'd have a panic attack or totally fly off the handle. But, yeah, I felt pretty calm. Then I saw the nest, and there was this fat mother rat lying there with these tiny babies suckling from her, she was surrounded by paper and hair. Some of it was obviously my hair. Wait, what? The mother rat is nesting in your hair? Yeah. Like a balled up clump of it. You know, like from a brush. Just wadded up with everything else. It was pretty unmistakable. I just dyed it fire engine red. I'm disturbed by that. Just wait. As I got closer, I could see the little shreds of paper. I could barely make it out. The light, scratchy pencil, the sections of weird doodles, the postmark. Phoebus? Yeah. That's when the terror entered my body. I got a sick, gutted feeling. And my hands got gummy, and I couldn't feel my lips. You know how Daphne will just leave his letters everywhere? Well, it ends up there were a few she never saw again. She didn't really care about finding them, and had taken pictures of all the pages, front and back, at Nibby's insistence. She guesses she must have thrown them away by accident. Because here they were, shredded and torn, outfitting a warm, dry, fluffy nest for a brand new generation 
of rats. And then I noticed this other squealing. And it was getting really loud and desperate. It sounded like a bunch of pigs being slaughtered. It was coming from the other side of the nest. It was sort of shadowy over there, past the reach of my flashlight, but I could see movement. It took every ounce of self-possession to command my limbs to move, but I forced myself to do it. And I went around the nest, and there it was. And I will never, ever forget it. What is it? The Rat King. The Rat King is a production of The Shrill Collective. It was written by L.R. Wilde. Directed by Chelsea Feltman and Ash Croce. Audio engineering and sound design by Brando Cress. Production assistance by Christina Cole, Allison Wilkes-Borland, and Linda DeFuria. Cover art by Samantha Farello. Featuring the voices of Stephanie Lavadera, Kelly Grego, Daniel Van Thomas, Fernando Vieira, Karen Levan, Richard Fisher, Dina Laura, Cherie Wishard, Al Pagano, and Rachel Feltman. The music was written, recorded, and arranged by Chelsea Feltman, Brando Cress, and Tim Leonard. Special thanks to Tim Leonard, Wes Borland, Max Zimbert, Monique Morgan, Laura Annister Walters, Maureen and Robert Croce, Rachel Feltman, Tessa Fay, and Tay Birch. If you or someone you know is being stalked, or as a survivor of domestic or sexual abuse, help is available. Go to stalkingawareness.com for victim resources and information. This and other information is linked in the show notes.